0: Well, if you would, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. And I'll begin this morning by reading our passage for us. Two verses, Philippians 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul says to the church at Philippi, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle and the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. There's a poem that sadly rings true in many churches today, and it goes like this. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will sure be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. The Apostle Paul knew all too well that this is sadly true in the church. Which is why he wrote about unity often in his letters to churches and to pastors of churches. In fact, listen to what Paul wrote in Romans 15.5. He said this, Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Then in 1 Corinthians 1.10, Paul said, Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be made complete in the same mind, in the same judgment. And then in 2 Corinthians 13.11, Paul said, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Galatians 3.28 Paul said this to the church of Galatia. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Then in Ephesians 4.3 he urges the church to be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In Colossians 3.14, he says, Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. In 1 Thessalonians 3.8, Paul said, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. This was a church that was united in love, and Paul says, I urge you to excel still more, to continue to be loving toward one another. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul said, So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Then in 1 Timothy Uh, In 2 Timothy and in Titus, Paul warns these pastors about divisive men in the church. Because he wants the church to be unified. And then in Philemon, he writes to Philemon and he tells him to take back Onesimus. For he is helpful for you. He's united now as a fellow brother in Christ. Does Paul care about unity in the church? Of course he does. And in all 13 of his letters, he addresses some aspect of unity in the church because he desires for the church to be unified. Before we get into our passage here in Philippians 4 regarding the unity between Yodia and Syntyche, these two women... I want us to look at some principles that Paul gives us about unity in his letter to the Ephesians. I want to give you some principles, help us to understand this principle of of unity so that we can understand what God is saying about unity in his church. And so take your Bibles and turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As we've seen in Philippians 1.27, Paul told the Philippian church to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And notice, as Paul writes to the Ephesian believers here in, Eph- in Ephesians chapter 4, notice what he says there, beginning in verse 1. He says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now the, the high point of these verses here is found in verse 3 where Paul tells them, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's the high point of this passage here, of these verses. This is what Christ desires for his church. And that's what God is telling his church here through the pen of the Apostle Paul. That he wants his church to be unified. But how is that achieved? How is unity achieved in the church? Well, let me give you four principles. Four principles to follow. That if every believer followed these principles here, unity would thrive in the church. You would thrive. Four principles. Principle number one, be humble. Be humble. Notice Paul says there in verse 2, with all humility. With all humility. You see, pride is a destroyer of unity. Pride is a destroyer of unity. In fact, John Stott said this, pride lurks behind all discord. Where you have pride, you'll have disunity and discord. But where you have humility, you will have unity and peace. As I've said before, humility is not really thinking less of ourselves, but humility is not thinking of ourselves at all. That's what true humility is. Pride is self-centered, self-seeking, self-gratifying. But humility is lifting others up and not thinking of self at all. In fact, one commentator says it this way. True humility is not putting ourselves down, but rather lifting up others. If we concentrate on lifting up others, putting down ourselves will take care of itself. If we focus on the betterment of others... And consider them as more important than ourselves, then we can't have pride. Because we won't be focusing on self, but we will be focusing on others. And think about what happens when everyone is thinking about others and not themselves. What does that produce? Produces unity, unity in the church. In fact, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.5 5, how we're to act toward one another. He says this, And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. God loves humility. And He's opposed to Pride. And whenever our hearts become prideful, it's then that we will begin to see discord and disunity in the body of Christ. And so in order to keep unity in the body, we must remain humble. And listen, listen, this doesn't mean that we're to work on someone else's humility. We like to do that, don't we, at times? Oh, that prideful person. I'll help them. No, instead we need to focus on ourselves. We need to work on our own humility. In fact, John MacArthur said working at unity is primarily working not on somebody else, but working on your own life. Working on unity means humbling yourself. So often we can point the finger at others, but we need to look at the other three fingers that are pointing back at us. Am I prideful? Am am I seeking to be more humble in my life? Am I considering others more important than myself? These are questions we need to ask ourselves. And if we grow in this area, we will see unity. Unity will then flourish in the midst of humility and so the first principle is be humble there's a second principle principle number two and that is be gentle be gentle notice paul says in verse two and gentleness or another word that we could say there is meekness meekness And the definition of this word here is the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Did you get that? The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. It's essentially saying, I'm not important. And a gentle person or a, a meek person doesn't mean that that person is weak. Oftentimes when we think of gentle or we think of meekness, we think of weakness. But that word meekness is defined this way. It is power under control. It's power under control. It has to do with the person who has self-control. A gentle person is not weak. They're not timid. They're not lacking of courage, but a gentle person is one who has power under control. He stays even keeled and and mild-mannered. In fact, gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.23, right? It's a fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Now, let me just say something else about gentleness here that I think is important for us to understand. When we talk about gentleness, this does not mean that a gentle person won't have righteous anger. When we talk about gentleness or a person being meek, it's not saying that a person won't have righteous anger. You remember in, in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29, where Jesus describes himself as gentle? And yet, what did Jesus do in the temple twice? He overturned tables, right? He went in and, and he flipped tables in the temple. He turned over the tables of the money changers because he had a zeal for his father's house that they had defiled. They defiled the temple. He's gentle and meek, but he also had righteous anger. The gentle person is not out to get vengeance, for that's the Lord's, right? Vengeance is the Lord's. But the gentle or uh, meek person Can have a righteous anger when God's word is maligned or Christ's name is slandered. But a person who displays this biblical gentleness or meekness will be one who promotes unity in the body of Christ. There's the third principle, principle number three, that is this be patient. Be patient. Not only be humble and and gentle, but also be patient. Notice Paul says again there in verse 2, with patience. This is a person who is long-suffering. This is a person who endures through hardships and difficult circumstances without giving in to them. That's the patient person. It is a person who is patient and holding out under trials or difficulties in their life. In fact, James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of a rather pious individual who once came to a preacher and asked him to pray for him that he might have patience. The man said, uh, I do lack patience. I'm trying to say it in the most humble manner. And he said, I wish that you would pray for me, Pastor. Pastor. And the pastor said, This, I'll pray for you right now. So the pastor bowed his head and began to pray, and he said, This, Lord, please send great tribulation into this brother's life. The man who had asked for prayer put a hand out and touched the preacher on the arm, trying to stop his prayer. And he said, you must not have heard me rightly. I didn't ask you to pray for tribulation. I asked you to pray that I might have patience. The preacher responded, oh, I heard what you said. But haven't you read Romans 5, 3, which says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. The pastor told the man, I'm I'm praying that God would bring you tribulation so that you can learn patience. And that's what patience is. It's it's being long-suffering. It's enduring under trial. In fact, people who aren't patient are people who are always ready to strike back anytime some trial comes their way. Anytime somebody wrongs them, they're ready to strike back. But that's not God's way. It's not God's way. And it doesn't bring about unity, right? Imagine if everyone was always ready to strike back. And actually did strike back anytime something happened to them. There would be discord all over. And you would never be able to have unity in an environment like that. And so God tells us we need to be patient. And then principle number four, fourth principle, not only are we to be humble and gentle and patient, but number four, we're to be tolerant in love. We're to be tolerant in love. Look at the end of verse two there. Notice what Paul says. He says, showing tolerance for one another in love. That word tolerance in the Greek means to bear with or to put up with. In fact, one commentator says, showing tolerance clarifies the meaning of patience. Being able to bear with one another is the practical expression of patience. A patient person bears with other people. But notice how it is to be done. Notice what Paul says there. In what? In love. In love. John MacArthur says, Love is the most important moral quality in the believer's life, for it is the very glue that produces unity in the church. It's the glue. Love in the Greek, there is is the Greek word agape, agape. This kind of love is not a possessive love, but it's a giving love. It's a love that gives to others. And this kind of love is is like glue among God's people, right? When we're all giving love to one another, what's happening there? We're building this bond. There's unity that's happening as all of us are loving one another. This giving love. Just as humility is thinking of the other person, gentleness is showing self-control toward another person, and patience is being long-suffering with another person, this tolerance or this bearing with one another is to be done by giving love toward the other person. This is love that seeks the highest good in the one loved, and it cements God's people together. It's a selfless love. And this love is so important here because tolerance without love could easily lead to anger and resentment, right? Tolerance without love can easily lead to anger and resentment. Think about bearing one another another person, bearing with another person for a long time without any love for them. And what will happen? you'll become annoyed. You become bitter towards them. You're bearing their load. You're bearing everything. But if you don't have love for them, it'll turn into annoyance and, and bitterness and anger towards them. And so the key there is that as we bear one another's burdens, we do it all with love. With love for them. And when we do it with love, it makes it a lot easier to bear, right? We do it willingly because we love them. And when this happens in the church, it produces unity. And so the outcome of humility and gentleness and patience and loving tolerance is unity in the spirit, in the body of peace. As Paul says there in verse 3, in this bond of peace that we have. In God's church. And so those there are four principles for pursuing unity in the church. And with an understanding then of that, turn back with me to Philippians chapter 4. I think understanding these is so helpful for us as we look now at Paul's exhortation to these two women, Yodia and Syntyche in verses 2 and 3. And as we look at these two verses here, we're going to break this down into two points. Two points. Our first point, we will call the rift. The rift. And notice what Paul says there in verse 2. He says, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Paul here is calling for unity in the church because he knows that there is division between these two women in the church. And what makes this appeal for unity here different from the rest is the fact that Paul actually calls out these two women by name. I just read you verse after verse after verse from all of Paul's letters. Did he mention any names? He didn't. But what does he do here? He mentions names. Chapter 1 and verse 27 He wants to hear that the church collectively is standing firm together. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he wants the church as a whole to make his joy complete by being of the same mind. In verse 3, he wants each one of them to have a mind of humility. So that as a group, they will be unified. And then in verse 4, he's calling for everyone in the church to look out for the interests of others. And even as we saw last week, In chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul tells the brethren, that is brothers and sisters in Christ, to stand firm in the Lord. That is, together, collectively stand firm in the Lord. But Paul's done being general. The issue between these two women causes Paul to be blunt and direct. And here in verse 2, he singles these two women out. And think about this, when Epaphroditus brought the letter back to the church, this would have been read to the entire congregation. Gather around church, I've got a letter for us from the Apostle Paul. Oh, wonderful, let's see what he has to say. And they would sit the congregation down and somebody would get up, one of the elders in the church would get up and they would read this letter to the congregation, imagine these two women who were sitting there yes that's right that's right mhm amen and then you get to chapter 4 oh no <laughs> he singled them out why were they singled out well obviously because they weren't unified but also because Paul takes disunity in the church very seriously. This is a very serious issue for the Apostle Paul. And why is it serious with him? Because Christ takes unity in the church very seriously. This may have seemed like a small matter to these ladies or even to the church, but not to Paul. This wasn't a small matter. Because he loves them and because he loves the church, he's going to call them out and urge them to get this issue resolved. And now, for all of time, the entire universal church knows that Yodia and Syntiki had a disagreement in the church. We'll see them one day in heaven. Yodia? Are you the Yodia? Yeah, that's me. Syntyche? Oh. (laughs) We know about you. Yeah, that's me. Notice what Paul does, though, with these two ladies. He urges them. This word urge here is not a command. In fact, in in the Greek, this word is the word parakaleo, and it means to urge strongly, to appeal to, to exhort, or to encourage. And he's getting as close to a command without actually giving them a command. He's urging them or exhorting them to get this issue resolved so that there can be unity in the church. As you can see there in the, the NAS, Paul uses this word urge twice. You see that there? He uses it twice. He uses it in front of Yodia's name, and he uses it in front of Sintiki's name. He repeats it twice, even though he could have only said it once and made it apply to both women. Why he repeats it twice, we don't know for sure, but commentators give a possibility for why he did this. Here's what they say. He may have done this because he may not have wanted the verb urge to stand closer to one name and not the other. You see, if that was the case, and it says, I urge Yodia and Syntyche, Syntyche could have thought, well, he named you first, and he's urging you to do this. It's your fault, Yodia, and you're responsible to resolve this disagreement. But by repeating the verb twice, it puts it both next to Yodia and next to Syntyche and shows that they are equally responsible for this issue. And therefore, they are both equally responsible to get it resolved. There's no mistake about this that Paul is urging each one of these women to get this worked out. Be unified. And as we can see here, Paul is strongly exhorting both of these women to be unified. Why is there such a strong urging? Because Paul knows that even small disputes in the church can spill out into the larger congregation and cause all kinds of troubles. He knows that. In fact, usually when there's a major There's major disunity in the church. It doesn't start from something major. It usually starts with something small between two people. Paul knows that. So he wants these women to get this thing resolved so that there can be unity in the church. Paul doesn't want this to turn into something major. And so he calls out these two women And by calling out these two women, Paul is preventing that from happening. He's preventing disunity in the church. He wants this rift to be over and for these women to be unified. Now, who are these two women, Yodia and Syntyche? Who are they? Well, we don't know. We don't know. All that we know is what is written here in these two verses. What do we know? There are a few things that we we know from these two verses. Notice in the middle of verse 3, Paul tells us that these women have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel. These women have shared my struggle, Paul's struggle, in the cause of the gospel. Although there is a rift between these two women at this point, Paul is urging them to be unified just as they were unified before when they shared in Paul's struggle in the furtherance of the gospel. Shared my struggle there in the Greek. That that word is the word soon athleo. Soon athleo. Soon means with, and athleo means to strive or contend for. That's where we get our English word athletics. They were in a struggle together, united. They were in the battle together, united with Paul for the advancement of the gospel. They both had sacrificed their lives and they played a significant, significant role in the spread of the gospel alongside Paul. And these women were to be commended for this. They were doing great work in the church as they were united, struggling alongside Paul together to further the advancement of the gospel. Their fellow laborers with Paul as Paul's mission was to go out and to spread the gospel. What exact role they played, we don't know. It doesn't tell us. But it was significant enough that Paul names them and knows what they did, right? Right? He knows what they've done. They locked their arms together with Paul as they served together for the furtherance of the gospel. Now Paul is urging these women to lock arms again and be unified and continue to serve the church and serve in furthering the gospel. Just as Notice there in verse 3, Clement also and the rest of Paul's fellow workers did. Who is Clement? We don't know. This is the only time that he's mentioned in the scriptures. Paul then thinks about all the others who have shared in his struggles for the gospel just as Yodia and Syntyche did. Who, by the way, have their names written in the book of life. So what do we know about these fellow workers and Clement and Yodia and Syntyche? They have their names written where? In the book of life. Their fellow believers. Sisters in Christ. Citizens of heaven. Whose names are written in the book of life. And Paul remembers them. He remembers these women who have served alongside him and shared in the spread of the gospel. And he doesn't like that they are disunified at this point. He wants them to be unified, to be united. In fact, the the very fact that their names are written in the book of life means that they're going to spend eternity together, right? They're spending eternity together. So what should they do now? Be unified, be united, remember. Remember. Your names are written in the book of life. You're going to spend all of eternity together. So get it together now. While you're here on earth, be unified. Because your eternity is going to, spend to, get, is going to be spent together with one another. Now, what was this rift all about between these two women? What was it all about? Well, we don't know. We don't know. But there is something that we do know about this rift. There is something that we do know, and it is this this rift between them is not a doctrinal issue. It's not a doctrinal issue, it had nothing to do with doctrine. How do we know? Because if it was a doctrinal issue, what would Paul have done? He would have clarified it for them. Just as he did over in 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4, well, what about the dead in Christ? What's going to happen to them? And there's all these different teachings that are going around. What's going to happen to all those who are dead in Christ? What does Paul do there? He clears it up for them. He fixes it. He teaches them and he says, no, this is what's going to happen. The dead in Christ are going to rise. They're going to rise first. And then all who are still alive will be caught up to be with them. If there's a doctrinal issue that's going on, Paul is definitely going to clear it up, right? But he doesn't do that. And so we know that this is not a doctrinal difference that is causing this rift, but it's something else. Whatever it is, Paul's urging each one of them to humble themselves and to live in harmony in the Lord. Which leads to our second point, point number two, and what we will call the resolution. The resolution. Paul wants them to get this thing resolved But because they have a rift in the relationship, notice what Paul tells them to do at the end of verse 2. Notice what he says there. To live in harmony in the Lord. There's a problem, but here's the solution. Live in harmony. You need to live in harmony. That word harmony there means to have an opinion with regard to something. To think, form, hold an opinion, or to judge. And it has to do with the mind. This word harmony here has to do with the mind. Remember, Paul is always after what? The mind or thinking. Paul's always writing about the mind. You need to think this way. You need to be like minded. Your mind needs to be fixed in this way. He's always after the mind. And here, with this word harmony, he's talking about the mind. He wants them to think this way. In fact, back in chapter 1 and verse 27, he wants them with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. The whole church with one mind striving together. Then in chapter 2 and and verse 2, he says, of the same mind. Be of the same mind. And then chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude or have this mindset Paul is after the mind. And he wants these women to have the same mindset. To be like-minded. And Notice he wants them to live this way. To live this way. Which means it needs to be the pattern of their life. To continually be living this way. This needs to be a habitual pattern in your life to be harmonious, to be like-minded. They need to have the same mindset and continue to live that way. Now listen, this does not mean that they cannot have their own personal preferences, likes and dislikes. One might like a certain color and the other one doesn't like a certain color. Or one likes a certain dress and the other one doesn't like a certain dress. Paul says, that's okay. He's not talking about that. So, how can they live in harmony then? And have a, a united or a unified mindset? How can they do this? Well, the key is found at the end of verse 2. Notice what Paul says there. In the what? Lord, in the Lord. That harmony is to be in the Lord. You can have dislikes. That's okay. You can like a certain color and somebody else likes another color. That's okay. Those are all preferences. But you need to have the mindset of Christ. You have to have harmony in the Lord. And as each one of them looks to Christ and the way that Christ lived, they will then find themselves living in harmony. And Christ modeled this, right? What was Christ's mind like? What was his attitude? Well, Paul already told us, right? Back in chapter 2. In fact, turn back there to chapter 2 and look at verse 2. Paul's already written to us about this. Paul's already written to Yodian and Syntyche about what it means to be in harmony in the Lord. Notice what he says in. In chapter 2 and verse 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also, what? In Christ Jesus. That attitude, what I've just written to you about, all that I just told you about, have that attitude. That attitude is the same attitude that was in Christ. And he calls for the church to have that same attitude. What did Christ do? Well, Paul goes on in that the Christ him there. And he tells us that he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What was the attitude of Christ? Humility. Considering others more important than himself. Loving others. Being patient with others. Tolerating others. in Love. And yet he's the greatest man to ever live. He's the greatest man to ever live. And yet he did not think about himself. He thought of the obedience to the Father's will and he thought of others. And he went all the way to a cross, willingly to a cross to die. For who? For us. For us. Out of his great love for us. That was his mind. And all of that, when we think about the life of Christ and all that Christ did, the attitude that Christ had, that takes us back to those four principles that we just talked about earlier, right? That was Christ's mind. That's the mindset of Christ. And so these women are to live in harmony in the Lord with the same attitude of Christ. And if they do that, that'll resolve the rift. That's the solution. Have the mind of Christ. Now, look back at our text in, in chapter 4, at the beginning of verse 3, and notice what Paul says there. He says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women. Paul not only urges Yodia and Syntyche to work this out, but he also calls on a third party to help them. He calls for somebody else to come and help them. You see, sometimes there are rifts in the church. And sometimes there's a third party that is needed and necessary in order to bring unity. Paul knows that. He understands that. That's what Paul calls for here. In fact, the only command given here in these two verses is to this man, this true companion. The command is to help. That's the command. Help these women. One command in these two verses here. Given to this man to help these women. That is your job, true companion. Now, who is this guy? Who is this true companion that Paul is talking about? Well, the Greek word that's used there for companion is the word syzygous, syzygous. And this word means true comrade or literally a yoke fellow, a yoke fellow. That's syzygous. And it's possible that Paul is not just asking for some random guy who is called true companion to help these women, but it's very possible that that's the guy's name, his name is Sisygus. Remember, as we study through the names of different people in Scripture, their names mean something, and that's who they actually are. Right? Your name is going to be Peter, which means what? A rock. Who was Peter? A rock. Preached the first two sermons in the church. He went out and proclaimed the gospel, spread the gospel. He's a rock. And so there, his name lines up with who he is. Syzygus is a true companion. He's a, he's a yoke fellow. He was a true yoke fellow. He was a guy who lived up to his name. And his job then was to help these women to be united and to live in harmony in the Lord. Who was this guy, Sisygus? Well, we don't know for sure who he was, but possibly one of the elders or the deacons of the church that Paul addresses back at the opening of the letter. Back, back in chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, that's the elders, and the deacons. He's writing to them. Syzygus was most likely one of those elders or deacons, a leader in the church. But he had one duty one duty, one command that was given to him from the Apostle Paul. What was his job? Help these women, help these women to be unified. That's his duty. That's his job. He was to be a peacemaker and bring these women who are in a rift together so that they can live in unity and harmony in the Lord. And so the solution to this rift between these women was not only that it was the responsibility of these two women to come together and live in harmony in the Lord, but it was also that Syzygous would help them to be United, to be unified in the Lord. And why would Paul command that? Why would Paul command for Syzygous to do this? Answer, because he takes unity in the church very serious, right? It's a very serious issue. And we should as well. We should take unity very serious. This morning, I, I began with these poetic words: "To dwell above with saints we love." oh, that will sure be glory. But to dwell below with saints we know, well, that's another story. May that not be true of us. May that not be true of us? May we be peacemakers. As Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. And why is peace and unity so important in the body of Christ? Because it's a reflection of our Savior. It's a reflection of our God. What did Christ come to do? He came to reconcile sinners To God, to bring unity, to bring peace between sinners and a holy and righteous God. That's what He came to do. And He's done that for all those who are in Christ. But some of you may be here this morning and you're not in Christ, you're not united with God but you're his enemy. And the wrath of God abides upon you. Listen, he's a holy and righteous God. He's a perfect God. And you have sinned against him. We have all sinned against him. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Bible says that the wages of our sin is death. But... But, we love that word, there's a free gift that God offers to all those who will repent of their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ, who made the payment for your sin, a payment that you could not make because you're not good. No, not one is good, the Bible says. But Jesus, the perfect Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, He came And he lived a perfect life and he went to a cross and he died on that cross to make the payment that you couldn't make. And he offers you the gift of eternal life this morning. And he calls for you to come to him. To deny yourself, take up your cross and follow after him. To turn from your sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. And if you do that this morning, he offers you and he promises you the free gift of eternal life. I urge you to do that this morning. To be reconciled with God. To come to Him through faith in Christ. And you can have the free gift of eternal life. If I could change the the words to that little poem, I would change it to this. To dwell above with saints we love, oh, that will sure be glory. And to dwell below with saints we know, well, that should be our story. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Christ. Thank you for his perfect death, his perfect life, his perfect death on a cross, the sacrifice that he made for sinners like us. And we thank you that he did not stay dead, but that he rose again on the third day and he lives and he sits at your right hand and he offers eternal life to all who would come to him. Father, I pray that if there is anyone who is here this morning who is not at peace with you, who is not unified with you, who is not in Christ, Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. I pray that you would regenerate their heart, that they would run to you in repentance and faith, that they would fall on their knees before you, And that you, God, would save them. Give them the free gift of eternal life. And give them the peace that only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Father God, I pray for those of us who are believers. As your church, as your children, brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, help us to be unified. Help us to take these principles that we've learned here this morning to apply them to our own lives that we would be humble and gentle and patient and that we would tolerate one another in love. Father, help us to live that out in the midst of this dark world so that we would reflect your heart and bring glory and honor to your name. We pray all of this in the name of our gracious Lord and Master, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.